Hi, I'm Phil. I'm Jenny. And I'm Taylor, and you are listening to Functional Tennis Podcasts. Welcome to the Functional Tennis Podcast. I'm Fabio Molly, your host. This week, I speak to Jenny, Phil and Taylor Dent. They are a mega tennis family. Phil is an Aussie Open finalist and Davis Cup winner, as well as dad of Taylor, who I first saw play at my first ever time on centre court in Wimbledon back in 2002. And he is husband to Jenny, who's a top 50 WTA player. It was great to chat to his tennis family about their tennis career, about their tennis academy in Keller, Texas, and also about the next generation of tennis players keeping the single-handed backhand alive. Before we start, a shout out to our podcast sponsor, Slinger, who make the awesome portable ball machine, the Slinger Bag. Head over to slingerbag.com to get all the info on the bag. If you've any burning questions, feel free to ask me as I'm a regular user and lover of my Slinger Bag. Okay, let's get chatting to the dents. Hi guys, welcome to the Functional Tennis Podcast. How are you in Texas? Yeah, we're doing good. It's winter time right now, so we are uh, staying cold. We're ducking in and out of some cold fronts that come from the north, but uh, we have the indoor building behind us, so when it gets uh, a little rough, we, we head inside. Great. Well, pleasure to have you on. Normally, we have one guest on. The other time, we've had two, but now we have a huge tennis family. We have Phil Dent, who is a finalist at the Aussie Open, won the Davis Cup, and many more things, which is amazing. We have... Jenny Dent, who I think runs the show there, I'd say, <laughs> but and we uh, who former top fifty, we've top fifty, just about top fifty player in the world. Jenny was, yeah. No, you, Jenny. Jenny was, yeah. And and then we've Taylor Dent, a uh, top twenty player in the world. I'll take it. Who I was first time at Wimbledon. The first match I saw was Taylor play Leighton Hewitt. So it's a real honour for me to have the Dent family on the show today. So, yes, so tell us a bit about, we're going to talk about the tennis in a while, a bit about the matches, the the parent-child coaching relationship. But tell us a bit about the academy, where exactly you're based, the type of courts you have, what sort of players you're working with, and if you have any players playing at the Aussie Open this week. Well, we're based in Keller, Texas. It's kind of uh, 30 minutes north of Fort Worth, Texas, and about 35, 40 minutes west of Dallas, Texas. We uh, picked this area because, you know, we wanted to get a whole bunch of land to build kind of our own little tennis playground. The surfaces we have here currently, we have five indoor courts that are behind us. We have 10 outdoor courts. It's all hard court. In the future, we may plop down one or two clay courts, but for the most part, the juniors around here and the club players around here, they play predominantly 100% of the time on hard courts. So yeah, uh, we just opened, actually the, the construction phase was a long drawn out process. We just opened 2019 in October. So we've been open just over a year and it has been uh, quite the learning curve, you know, running and operating our own business. And what sort of, who does what between the tree is there? What's the structure? Well, for the longest time, dad was uh, during the, doing the academy with me. We were kind of out on the courts and Jenny would make a guest appearance every so often out there. We're toning down dad's uh, academy hours, but he's still teaching a lot of private lessons with our academy kids, just getting the fundamentals correct. Jenny does a ton of the administrative stuff. And again, she's out there as well, quite a bit with the academy kids. And, and I'm doing, you know, the, the high performance, the academy kids. And that's, you know, kind of one of the things that we do that's it's a little unique. You know, that's one of the aspects that make us unique is 
you know, within the club, because we own the club, we have a pathway. Like we have a red, orange, green dot program. Then we have just out of that, we have a prep program, a qualifier program, an elite program, and then the full-time program. So we're really trying hard to start these kids on the right foot from a very, very young age. You know, what kind of we've experienced and what breaks our heart a little bit is when you get a 16-year-old who's got ambition to play, you know, professional tennis has the work ethic, but man's starting that process at 16 is is tough especially if you've kind of ingrained some some really hard things to overcome so we we tried hard from a very young age to get these kids on the right foot and then if they want to pursue whatever they want to pursue we'll be uh, right there with them and what sort of percentage of your kids in the academy would go to college tennis and many would try play pro so far i know it's your only only early days but maybe phil from your experience what path do you see players take the majority of them well most of them go to college some of them try the tour at the at a early stage, but it's it's tough. It's hard to be. You got to be pretty wealthy in a in a way to to sustain the expenses that occur um, to maintain the the travel that you've got to do. But basically, it's the college players that that we get most of. We get them into our we do pretty well getting them in Division One schools. Pro level, it's tough. You know, as I said, you've got to be really dedicated and you've got to have the skills to actually get it out there and. And if you, you're talking about getting in the top 500, you know, that's accessible for most of the kids, I think, that we teach. But uh, if you're talking about actually making a living out of it, you've got to get basically in the top 150. And then you're competing with the world. You know, this is like, this is a, a big pond. You know, this is where the, the best players you know, congregate. And that's why I think our academy is great. We have a, a, a way of teaching, I think, that is, that is modern. And it's and it actually has never changed, you know, like because the, the the aspect of playing tennis is is basically spreading the court, and we we do a fair fairly good job in teaching the kids to to be offensive and and play an all round game. And while we're just talking about being offensive here, and I know Taylor was a servant volleyer with the big, massive, what, 147 mile an hour serve, was it? Yeah. Which is still, you know, you don't get many of them today. Like, so you were ahead of your time, but. Maxime Cressy, let's jump in. Are you proud of what he's doing for American tennis? Yeah, no, I'm not. Uh, I'm not an expert on on Maxime Cressy. Hopefully, I'll get to see more of him play as he gets on uh, on TV more. He actually came out when we first started in in Texas because we had a, one of his buddies out here training, Evan Zeus. So they were friends from UCLA. But uh, just looking at his stats, I get to see some highlights every so often. And man, he is serving monsters. I think uh, in one of his matches, his average second serve speed was 119 miles an hour. I wasn't doing that. So if he's able to put that speed there, I mean, shoot, then then you can kind of get away with a lot of things. Yeah, it was pretty impressive. It's great to see something a bit different out there. It's rare you see just all out attack. And Jenny, tell me, who do you guys have out in Australia right now? We've got a player, her name's Liv Hobby. Uh, she's been uh, working with Phil for many years now, and she's come to the academy. And she's a very talented, very hardworking, just a great player, really taken on to, uh, we call it the triangle, just opening up the court, being offensive, taking balls on the top of the bounce. And she's extremely accurate. Uh, and that's one of the things that just makes her so good. Uh, she's got a nasty backhand. So she's out in, in uh, at the Australian Juniors, and she's in the quarterfinals now? Quarterfinals, yeah. yeah. That's awesome. Great. Well, I'll keep an eye out on it. We'll know this is going out in a few days, so we'll know the results pretty quick. <laughs> and what separates somebody like her and another player is the amount of work she puts in, the dedication. Is there anything that really stands out? 
Yeah, no, I mean, like, she's dedicated to, and she's into becoming a world-class tennis player, so it takes time. You have to put time on the court, time in the in the preventative areas of not being injured. You have to do all that sort of stuff. I mean, look, her, her game is based around what we basically teach. We teach uh, a game where we play outside a triangle, which is spread the court when you can. You know, we don't find playing down the middle of the court is very successful. I mean, sometimes in college you see a little bit of that, but I think you know, the game has not got back, you know, gone backwards. It, it's getting faster. It's getting better. The kids are getting more accurate. And with Liv, I mean, she has, I've been with her for like five years, I think, and Taylor and Jenny have had you know, times with her as well, and she goes to the academy. So we basically teach these kids that they can play anywhere they want on the court, basically, and back, you know, up a little bit further. It just depends, but you can always play a philosophy of playing outside the triangle when you get the right shot. Yeah, you're going to hit balls down the middle of the court if you know for a bigger target sometimes, but it's not a I don't think that's a, a game plan. I think that's a tactic sometimes. But for Liv, I mean she's good. She's competitive and she she wants it. So uh hopefully she beat the number three seed in the world yesterday. So hopefully she can keep moving forward. You talk a lot about your strategy, what you try and teach all your players the way to play the game, this triangle format. Is that something that you just have to be repetitive? do day in day out until it becomes the player just does it without thinking about it and that becomes their dna really you actually said it great so so we have a nine-year-old son who's playing tennis creating that dna to me being an offensive player is very important so you know i don't let him play really any safe shots he's ripping every ball and he's got to be you know spreading the court getting the ball wide hitting safe targets it's emotionally easy and skill-wise, it's easy. And so, you know, I, I feel like what we try to really impress on all our players is be that offensive player. And if you need to make shots safer because you're struggling or it's a tough shot, fine. Then we can do that with some some good ball quality. But I think it's both. I think it takes a lot of skill to hit a ball in a, in a small area. I mean, if, if we say, well, let's hit a ball in, in the court somewhere, okay, that, that's fine. You know, it doesn't take much skill. But if we say that we're going to hit a ball in, in a three-by-three-foot you know, area that's effective, well, then that takes a ton more skill. And then on top of that, emotionally, it takes a lot more courage as well because, you know, it isn't fun to miss. It's either frustrating or it's scary to where, you know, players want to back off. So I, I think it's, it's a skill thing and it's also a... Uh, an emotional thing as well. You know, one of the better players we've worked with recently was Jared Donaldson. And uh, we were trying to impress on him the importance of you got to spread the court. You can't just hit the ball big down the middle. Guys are too good. And, you know, he, they kind of bought in. We'd see it on TV and all this sort of stuff. And uh, I think like nine months, six months went by and he wasn't really doing it in tournaments. It's tough. It's scary. And he can do it. Like in practice, just guys hitting yeah. targets all the time. And uh, what changed him was he went over to, uh, he got invited to train with Roger Federer in Dubai. And he was doing drills with Federer, and they just had this newly resurfaced court using brand new balls. So it's leaving down all these ball marks. And so I point out to Jared, and I just said, look at where all these ball marks are. And Federer's ball marks are so close to the sidelines, and you can tell intent. Like, if something happens one time, you can't really tell intent, what, what the intention is. But if you see a consistent pattern, with, which is what Federer mm -hmm. was doing, you know what he's working on. You know what he's trying to do. And when you flick on the TV, you see what they're trying to do. They're trying to hurt people by, by stretching them out and getting them wide. And so I think that for Jared was uh, was was an eye-opener. But that's kind of the message we preach here. It's just like, look, you can certainly win a lot of matches in the juniors and at a certain level in college tennis by hitting a good quality ball down the middle of the court. But if we want to mm. not limit our potential – we need to gain hitting skill by spreading the court and learning how to finish points because, I don't know, the better you get, 
the less you want to see your opponent play because they're they're darn good too. Yeah, two things I want to touch on. One is your son's name is Liam, isn't it? That's right. We have featured him on Functional Tennis. Devin did send us a video. That single-handed backhand is beautiful. <laughs> he was absolutely ripping them. And the video, people love the video. He was really good. So great job there. And two, the whole, just briefly touching on college tennis, I know kids have been guilty from Ireland going to the US and coming back safer players because they've played that safe game in college tennis won the matches but it didn't excel their game and yeah they come back consistent but they're missing anything wow or any powerful shots so I do understand that you can get stuck in a trap by playing college tennis and, and it's not all college tennis it's not 100% of it but I think it's, it's safe to say in general terms you know college tennis the, the mindset for the, the majority of the players not all the players and not all the coaches but from our experience what we've seen it's about let's make the opponent earn it let's make the the opponent play and and we see that in professional tennis but that just tends to happen more in return games you know because the best returners are guys who can prolong the point Djokovic you know he can scramble and, and keep the points long players like that are great returning but when it's time to hold serve and time to win these games it's more about quick tennis it's about uh, you know keeping the points as short as possible first ball first forehand and, and make the opponent pay so that that's that's one of the things that, that I find is is you know I find it's easy to talk about but tough for the players to embrace is as you get better it's no longer tennis it, it is holding versus breaking and you kind of have to embody two different personalities when you do that and and actually when I did that on my career that's when I had my big jump and rising level I was always offensive on my service games, but on the return games, I was offensive too. And I never made anybody play. I never broke anybody. And I finally got sick and tired of it. And that's when I started chipping my returns and making opponents play. And I screamed up the rankings. So I really feel like, especially on the men's game, you know, you have to be a split personality. Did Phil give you that advice? What did he say about my return games? I don't know. <laughs> Probably said I was holding the wrong grip or something. <laughs> and tell me, Jenny, little Liam, what's his future goals? Does he have big tennis future goals? Oh, for sure. Obviously, he's surrounded by, you know, uh, all of us. So the one thing I had growing up is I or didn't have is I didn't have uh, any professional athletes uh, around me. And so I didn't really have professional aspirations until I was 17, 18 years old. I didn't really think that I was made from the same cloth. I didn't feel like I had the same DNA. What I'm trying to make sure that Liam understands is that, I mean, if I could do it, you can do it. Like I am, I put myself at the bottom. I was not special at all. Um, and I was even able to, to get there now with, you know, all of this, the influence and the, the constant talk of what it takes, I think hopefully he understands that it's not about whether he will make it or not. It's it's whether he will be very good or will he not be, you know, at the top. I mean, he's going to get there. He can get there. If he works hard enough at, at it, we can help him create the path uh, with direction and what to work on. I mean, you know, parents always look for shortcuts, right? And if when people come to us, and, and I think what we provide at the Dentonist Academy is um, they, they see and we show that you're going to get our experience coaching your child. So our professional experience. At times, I'm not sure that a parent is totally on board with what we're asking their child to do because we ask a highly skilled game and a highly skilled game does not come overnight. It's, it's a marathon. It takes time. Like I said, I mean, I wasn't 
I didn't have aspirations to play professionally until I was 18 because I really didn't blossom until I was 18. I was very mediocre as a 10, 11, 12, you know, 13 year old. So it takes a lot of emotional strength and, and maturity to see the end goal and keep at it on the path. So for Liam, again, we, we say this is what it's going to take. And if, if there is a shortcut, it's saying, look, let's work on these things instead of these things right? Focus on this, even though you may not be winning so much right now, and this will help you in the future. We can focus on these things and we can win now, but by the time it's time to focus on this, it's going to be very hard. It's going to be inside the the player. It's going to be an emotional struggle. Like Taylor said, we've seen that many times where a player is not able to take that step and do what's necessary to get to the next level. So we're just trying to create that identity now. And then, you know, it's, it's really funny. It's great to see that uh, motivation and that determination from a child so young because I felt a little bit like I was kind of pulled along with, you know, from my, my parents for a little while. And yeah. I finally caught the bug and I was like, this is who I am. But these two are, are totally different. They were, I mean, from the get go, that's who they are. That's their identity. So, you know, for Liam, it's it's so fun and enjoyable for us as parents to be able to provide him something that he wants to do from the beginning. Again, I, I, I think whether or not he can get to the very highest level, that's up to him. But we can help him provide him. Yeah. You know, he he the one hand backhand is hysterical. I'm just gonna give you a short little story. Yeah. Taylor was um out for a little while from his back injury and um, Trevor Mowat was his uh, mental coach down at IMG and created these highlight reels on DVD to inspire Taylor to get back, to say, look, this is where you can be again. Look at what you've done. You've, you've been out for three years and you got back to 75 and he would have these highlight films. And so I kept them and I put them in a little DVD packet and Liam at five years old found them. It says daddy versus Nadal or Taylor versus, you know, versus whoever it was. And he pops it in the DVD player and he's watching these videos and he's just seeing Taylor just crushing winner, ace, over, like, just, right? And he's going, my dad is awesome. He doesn't ever lose a point. Like he's my hero. And he's like, I got to hit a one-handed backhand like daddy. And this is at five years old. And we're like, no, buddy, it's just, it's too difficult. You can do that later, but stick with the two hand. No, no, no. I got to hit the one hand. So we wouldn't let him do it. Well, then Devon sent a video, let him do it on his own over by himself, took a video of this kid hitting this like perfect one-handed backhand slow motion. And we were both like, oh, okay. Well, okay, then you can do it, but just know it's going to take a long time to get it really good. But the kid just, you know, he went, he saw it and saw his father and it was it was love at first sight. Well, that, <laughs> that is brilliant. Look, it's great. There's not that many single-handed backhanders, great ones out there. And I obviously, I, I saw Liam's video. I think it's amazing. We've seen a few others. There's a few others on Instagram that we've we've posted. And yeah, they're great. And there's definitely a future for them. Best of luck to Liam in the future. Join over 10,000 people who have downloaded our free match and practice PDFs over at functionaltennis.com forward slash downloads. Our match and practice PDFs help you plan and evaluate your matches and practices. We have some other free downloads there for you too. So make sure you go over to functionaltennis.com forward slash downloads. And tell me, Phil, what was Taylor like growing up as a kid? 
Were you trying to get him to the double-handed backhand? No, actually, he started off with a double-handed backhand. He started off with one. And in when he was growing up and where I came from, when I started to play in the, in the late 60s when I went on the tour, and there weren't too many two-handed backhands around. And, and, and Taylor, you know, he was, he was a good-sized guy at that age. And I thought, well, maybe we're just sort of – and he, you know, we were just switching to a one-handed because maybe it'll help him work a little better and, and all that sort of stuff. That was my reasoning for it. But he, he was gifted, you know. It didn't take much to get him going and to, and to, to get him to hit a one-handed backhand and slice and everything. But, you know, he was, and he's, he was intense. I mean, he practised hard and he really wanted to. I was coaching, I think, at the time, Michael Chang at the time, and, and he came along and he would watch us play. And also we have, he has a, a brother and uh, he watched Brett play. Brett was very good. He got to the finals of the NCAAs. And uh, so he was sort of introduced to it with some really good players and watched some uh, from the sidelines. And this he doesn't remember this, but I do. We were down in uh, Palm Springs, and I think Michael had just finished his practice, and he said, come on, Taylor, come on, hit some with me. And Taylor had hit some before and everything. And so he came on the court, and there was a huge crowd because Michael has just been finished practicing, and so Taylor was hitting with him a little bit. So he came off the court afterwards, and he, he basically hit a few more. He said, Dad, you know, I, I'd like to play tennis because he really he didn't actually start until he was probably almost 11. So I, I never pushed him. I never pushed him into, into playing because I knew it was difficult, you know, having a father playing tennis and all that sort of stuff. But he really, he got into it and he was dedicated. And as I, they both said, to, 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 to make it out on the tour, and especially today, I mean, maybe my, in my day it was a little less, it was a little lax maybe in training and everything. But, I mean, we trained hard, but we also had a pretty good nightlife, I think. But, uh <laughs> But no, in these days, they, they train very hard. And, you know, and going back to the point where, you know, we, we, the way we teach is that I think if you, if you teach a negative game, then basically I think they're getting left behind today because the game is, look, from the time I played with a wood racket, halfway through, we changed to the graphites and everything. But, you know, the game is getting faster. It's not, it's not getting any worse, I can tell you. The, the kids are getting more skilled at an earlier age. There's more of them. And if you're going to play, sit back and play a negative game, then you're not standing still. You're actually losing ground. And the kids like who have been taught with the elite academies like us, our academy here and around the world, you're losing ground. And, and the kids also going to college. You know, a lot of the colleges are introduced to, they have a lot of foreign kids. And so they, they, they have yeah. to keep up with these kids. They can't. I think a lot of the colleges now, the top 10 that I've seen, the kids do play more like they spread the court. They have to. You know, you, we've had experiences where we've had some association with people who wanted to teach certain ways, you know, conservative tennis. And really the kids know. Right now they already know that if I get a ball that I can hit, I'm standing inside the court, why am I hitting down the middle? I've got to, I've got to spread the court. I've got to. The, the, what happens when you make a guy run or a girl run on the court? They can miss or they hit it short. Okay, they may hit a good shot, but in general, if you hit the ball down the middle of the court, well, I'm almost 72. I think I could still play down the middle of the court. If some guy's going to hit the ball down the middle of the court to me, I think I'm still pretty good. <laughs> so, I mean, I just think you're losing ground if you start playing a negative game. I think that's such a negative game, and you're almost telling the kids, you're not good enough to actually do this. That's a bad thing. When you start telling a kid, you, you know, you're not quite good enough to, to play a real game. That's a, that's an awful thing to say to a kid. 
Awful. Definitely, you don't want to hear that. No. Quick throwback to Michael Chang. What's the one thing you remember most about Michael Chang that stood out? Competitive, these two. Uh, Michael and Taylor. And, you know, and I worked with Sheriff Farrell for a while. They're, they're competitive. I mean, they they asked questions. They they were saying, why is this working? Why You know, they didn't sort of push me to, to answer the questions and they wanted to get better. You know, Michael was extremely quick. I mean, like unbelievably quick for that era. Unbelievably quick. But he, when I first got him, he used to stand back near the back fence. And I'd played, and he was pretty good. He was about 14, 15. He was turning 15, I think. And he was already starting to play some of the, the futures and satellites events. And I must have been 38, 40, you know, close to that. I hadn't played a competitive match in six years. And I, I used to play him matches. I used to play him sets. And uh, I said to him, I said, there's no way you can beat me standing that far back. There's no chance. So he'd get out, we play sets, and I'd beat him every time. He'd so, so he got to understand because he was coming up with the, the, the Agassiz and the Sampras's. And so I used to put buckets of balls behind the court, like about six feet behind the baseline, <laughs> so he couldn't move back. So he learned to actually take the ball early. He took the ball as early as, as, as Agassiz most of the time. He didn't stand up as close as Agassiz. But you don't have to. You don't have to stand on the baseline. You can stand a little bit further back and still take advantage of a, say, a, a low-quality bouncing ball. So Michael was – he was intense, though. He was he was good. Good kid. What's your thoughts on somebody like Medvedev today who stands so far back? Like, obviously, he's multi-skilled and talented, but you definitely – what would you do to him today if you had him there, down at the Birch Centre? The game – look, these guys can play as far back as they like. What they look like, they're dumb. He can stand back a fair way, but you watch him. As soon as he see a ball that doesn't have that quality bounce to it, he's inside out. He is a devastating player inside that court. Once he steps near the baseline and, and, and inside that court, he is devastating. It's the same as, look, remember, there's a, he's an exception. I mean, even his backhand looks weird. I mean, like he's crossed over and he looks like a crab trying to do thing, but it's great. It's a great shot. You can't stop him. Anyone being an exception, like Nadal's falling, running around like this, hitting things here like that. It's a great shot. You don't stop that. And, and just to just to you know add to that point is also that's another example of how tennis is two parts. I mean, Medvedev doesn't start the point serving at the fence. I mean, he starts you know serving at the baseline. And I read an article where last year's Australian Open, he was the best player at finishing points on his serve quickly with either the first ball or the third ball. And that's where, as a returner, he does start back. But they also, I was watching uh, U.S. Open did this Hawkeye chart where his first ball was, you know, really far back. The second ball he hit on average was about eight, ten feet behind the baseline. And the third ball he hit was about a couple of feet behind the baseline. So, yes. And that, and then, like I said, that's where, absolutely, if you want to start the return from a defense, you can't. There's examples about 100%. But... The idea is to try and neutralize that point, and we don't want—we certainly don't want to serve and then run all the way back to the fence. That—that's kind of not the way it, it, it's done. So again, just another example of how tennis is not just tennis; it is holding and it is breaking. And he—he he is an outlier, obviously, with his strange strokes, and it's amazing to watch. And just quickly, we would quickly touch on before we end this on a lot of our listeners are parents. Some of them coach their kids, some of them attend the sessions, some are barred for the training sessions. But what advice? We've like three generations of tennis here. I know we've 
two sets of parents. I know we talk about Liam, but so we can look at it from both sides. Phil, what sort of advice do you have for parents out there who want to be more involved in their kids' tennis training? I mean, look, I think for me being a father for Taylor, it's just that I was involved with him with his training and everything. But And you can be involved with it. The parents can be involved. I think the hardest thing for a parent, and including me, who, who found out I knew better, you know, because I came from a pretty tough father, you know, in, in my beginnings. But the thing is, if you want to be a plus for your kid, don't be negative. Don't be negative. Encourage the kid to, to keep moving forward. If you take things away from the kid, like, what, why are you missing that? You know, you get off the court and the kid's lost. And, I mean, I, I tried my best. And I wasn't good the first couple of years with Taylor, I must admit. But I learned that yeah. you never talk to him after he's had a loss, okay? If you can keep away because the kids are defensive, every kid will be defensive. And the, and the parents have such a huge vision on the, on the kid's game. You know, it's almost a crazy vision of what they do. And so you have to basically be real careful on how you, you – you're part of their team. You're, you're it, you know. You have to be careful how you, you, you talk to the kids. Now, that's my biggest advice. Be very careful. Be positive, And accept they're not going on the court. I can remember my dad saying to me, why are you missing that shot? Why? I said, well, of course, Dad, I'm out there trying to miss it. You know, on purpose. I'm not trying to miss the shot. I mean, no kid's going out there trying to miss the shot. But you have to be any parent, from my perspective, you have to be real careful how you treat them, how you talk to them. Jenny or Taylor, what's your bit of advice coming from, say, a different generation? Well, so having Liam and going to tournaments with Liam changed my appreciation for being a tennis parent. I mean, it adds another element of emotion. As a coach, you want your players to win, but I feel like it's pretty easy maybe for me to stay objective. I'm like, okay, that was a tough match. We need to go back and work on X, Y, and Z. Having your child out there playing, it brings a different ball game into it, but it still doesn't change what's best for the kid. And, you know, we've been through this song and next a few times. I've seen it through, you know, decades now. We've seen it hundreds of times with parents and kids, and we see what works and we see what doesn't work. If the parent's hard on the kid, sure. You know, we, we, you, you, there's examples of that with uh, players making it to the pro level, but what you don't see is the 99% of the time it doesn't work and the kids hate tennis, they burn out and they quit. So just like Medvedev having, you know, kind of outlier strokes, there's always going to be an exception to the rule because a player can overcome that. But more often than not, the situation that we see work the best, both for the player's tennis and also for the relationship of the parent to the player is the parent does not protect the player. The parent puts the player in uncomfortable situations, whether it's emotional or physical, right? They, they, they let the player, you know, kind of learn and struggle through it. And then the player comes off, doesn't feel good about what just happened. It's uncomfortable. And the parent is there as a support and encouragement system. The situations we see on the flip side that work the worst from our experience is when the parent protects the player from any uncomfortable, oh, I don't want to play against that person. That person has a lower UTR or a lower ranking. I don't want to play against that person. I don't want to play here. I don't want to play there. Just constantly protecting this kid. And then they take it on themselves to be the hard hammering force in that kid's life. And it is a disaster. Talk about a player who has zero confidence and who hates their parent like clockwork every single time. So I would just say, you know, to kind of piggyback on what my dad said is don't protect your kid. Don't protect your player from uncomfortable things. They have, you want to create 
a little piece of iron out there. You want them to walk into a situation and say, I've, I've been through something like this before or something tougher than this before. I can handle this. And then when they don't, when they fail, the parent is there to say, you know what? That was a tough one today, but you did a great job. You fought hard. You did what you were supposed to do. And that's a growing experience. We'll get better at that. And maybe you don't get it next time, but the next time after that, maybe we do, you know? And, and so I really think that that is when we see players shine. I mean, I think uh, with Liv Hobdy, her mom is with her all the time. I think her mom does a really good job of that. You know, she she really encourages and backs Liv up. She gives Liv some freedom and some independence. And, uh, you know, same thing with uh, Jared Donaldson's father, Courtney. He was awesome with that. He would always see when Jared was down from a tough situation and give him the silver lining, not lie. It's not about lying because the kids will see through that, but it's about pointing out the good things and just picking the kid back up, not beating the kid down. You want to create a confident player, not a player that's just, you know, just beat into submission. That's some good advice there. I've one question left for you each, the exact same question, all three of you, maybe start with Jenny. Looking back at your career on the tennis court, what's the one match that stood out the most for you? Hmm. There's a lot that stood out. I mean, if I had to pick one that I felt proud of, I would say I had a pretty good match against a, a played well. The score wasn't necessarily great, but I played really well against Moresmo on the on the second court at Wimbledon one year, and it was. It was a thrill for me to be on that court playing that that player um, and then playing some a good level of tennis. Um, you know, I think the one thing that I don't feel like I, I did very well in my career was rise to the occasion at the Grand Slams. I didn't do as well as I wanted to do. I, but but that you know that that's a. Uh, that match was real special for me. It was just that number two court was fantastic. Nice. Well, only a handful of people get to play in these slams, so that's it's an amazing privilege. Me? Phil. Okay. Well, I got a lot of memorable ones, unfortunately. <laughs> um, well, I mean, losing to Connors in the Australian final didn't really taste all that good. Um, I would have liked it for okay. that one. Um, I played. I played Labor. I played Borg. I played Connors and you know, all those guys. And the one I can remember the most was playing McEnroe. I think. And uh, I played him in the French. He was. I was twenty. I was about twenty-seven. I was probably in the top fifteen in the world. I think close to that. I was. Uh, I was playing him in. He was about seventeen, eighteen, and playing him in the, about the third. I think the third round of the French. And he was well-mannered, good kid. Unbelievable, Play a good, really good tennis player. I'd been down like, I think it was deep in the fifth set, dark, you know, little drizzle going on in the French on the clay. And anyway, I'm down a break point, deep in the fifth, and I hit a ball that's in by about a foot. Umpire calls it out, and McEnroe said, no, no, ball's good. He gave me the point, and I ended up holding, breaking, and holding again, and I ended up winning the match, and I ended up getting the semis that year. I saw him in the locker room afterwards, and I didn't know him. He was just new on the circuit. And so he's got his head down and everything, and I uh, thought, ah, well, I'd go and talk to the kids. So I go over there, and I'd been out there a long time, and I'd learned the lessons the hard way you know, with those guys. And so I said to him, listen, on this circuit here, no one will give you anything. If, it was, if it were, I was in the same position as you, I wouldn't give you that call. I said, don't look at me. Go to the umpire. If you've got a, you got a beef, go to the umpire. So I played in Wimbledon about four or five weeks later, <laughs> and I played him in the quarters. 
this kid is going nuts. <laughs> what have I done? It's all your fault. <laughs> and so he's always blaming me. He said, you did this to me. He said, you did this to me. So he was incredible. He, oh, from that day on, he was just a different kid. You know, he was uh, unbelievable. Too much. You did a good job. <laughs> but just quickly, based on, you talk about Borg and Connors, did those guys have an aura about them like, let's say, Federer Nadal did back then? Sure. Yeah, I mean, Borg and Connors, they were, they were great players. And they, they, they were, look, they were intense. I mean, they were competitors. I mean, the guys in the top, they compete. You know, they're, they're really good. I think, you know, Connors, you know, Borg was quiet, silent on the tennis court. You know, he just fought hard. And Jimmy was more, you know, outgoing, mm-hmm. I would say, on the tennis court. But uh, yeah, they had an aura. So did Macaro after a while. These guys were special. It's rare you, I get to speak to somebody who would have been around when those guys were around and playing with them. So it's great to hear that. But uh, Taylor, something I normally ask a player would be, what match would you tell your grandchildren? Now, it actually applies really well here. That's what I should have asked Phil. But like, what match would you say to Liam if Liam says, Daddy, Daddy, tell me, what match are you going to tell me about today? Like, what's the best story? Uh, shoot, it actually wasn't a very memorable match at all by, by you, know, sta- you know, from outside looking in. But for me, it hit me pretty hard. And, and I noticed when the game changed. You know, it was when I played Federer at... Uh, Miami and you know I never viewed ground strokes as being kind of the the weapons I thought ground strokes you were either solid or it's a setup to kind of come to the net and finish and in that match I didn't really feel like Federer was hitting the ball huge but he was hitting the ball so accurate and so close to the sidelines that it really opened my eyes on on tennis you know what I mean it opened my eyes on what he was doing with tennis now obviously Fast forward, uh, you know, to where we are now, and there's so many guys doing what he did. But I really think that from my perspective, that was eye-opening. It was unlike anything I had experienced before, and he changed the game, and, and that was the match that I felt it, like why this guy was doing so well. Great. Uh, no, it's, it's so good to hear these stories and from such a great tennis family. So thank you very much. I wish your player in the Aussie Open the best of luck now in the quarters and the academy from ever over in that part of the world, which won't be too soon, unfortunately. I'll pop in, but thank you very much for coming on. Great. Thank, thank you so much. much. Thank you. Hope you enjoyed the episode. It was great speaking to such a rich tennis family. I'll be back next week. And until then, get out there and play some tennis. Bye.